All right. It's a long reading today. I'm still deciding whether to let you stand, to sit, or make you stand. I'm leaning towards stand. Stand. All right. In the honor of reading God's Word. All right. You have your Bibles. Turn to Isaiah 37. Beginning in verse 1. It reads, when King Hezekiah heard their report, and by the way, this, I'll get to the background here, but the report of was an army coming. When King Hezekiah heard their report, he tore his clothes and put on burlap and went into the temple of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, Eliakim the palace administrator, Shebna, to the court secretary and the leading priest, all dressed in burlap, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They told him, this is what King Hezekiah says. Today is a day of trouble, insults, and disgrace. It is like when a child is ready to be born, but the mother has no strength to deliver the baby. But perhaps the Lord your God has heard the Syrian chief of staff sent by the king to defy the living God and will punish him for his words. Oh, pray for those of us who are left. After King Hezekiah's officials delivered the king's message to Isaiah, the prophet replied, Say to your master, this is what the Lord says, Do not be disturbed by this blasphemous speech against me from the Assyrian king's messengers. Listen, I myself will move against him, and the king will receive a message that he is needed at home. So he will return to his land, where I will have him killed with the sword. Meanwhile, the Assyrian chief of staff left Jerusalem and went to consult the king of Assyria, who had left Lachish and was attacking in Libna. Soon afterwards, King Sennacherib received word that King Tirhaka of Ethiopia was leading an army to fight against him. Before leaving to meet the attack, he sent messengers back to Hezekiah and in Jerusalem with this message. This message is for King Hezekiah of Judah. Don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you with promises that Jerusalem will not be captured by the king of Assyria. You know perfectly well what the kings of Assyria have done wherever they have gone. They have completely destroyed everyone who stood in their way. Why should you be any different? Have the gods of other nations rescued them? Such nations as Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar, and my predecessors destroyed them all. What happened to the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad? What happened to the kings of Sepharvim, Hena, and Eva? After Hezekiah received this letter from the messengers and read it, he went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed this prayer before the Lord. O Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You alone created the heavens and the earth. Bend down, O Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance against the living God. It is true, Lord, that the kings of Assyria have destroyed all these nations. And they have thrown the gods of these nations into the fire and burned them. But of course, the Syrians could destroy them. They were not gods at all, only idols of wood and stone shaped by human hands. Now, O Lord our God, rescue us from his power. Then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent this message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Be, and, and notice here, because you prayed about King Sennacherib of Assyria, the Lord has spoken this word against him. And this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. His armies will not enter Jerusalem. They will not even shoot an arrow at it. They will not march outside its gates with their shields, nor build banks of earth against its walls. The king will return to his own country by the same road on which he came. He will not enter the city, says the Lord. 
For my own honor and for the sake of my servant David, I will defend this city and protect it. That night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. Then King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and returned to his own land. He went home to his capital of Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nishrach, his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, killed him with their swords. Then they then escaped to the land of Erat, and another son, Esardon, became the next king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we jump in here. Father, we just ask, you have a seat, by the way. Father, we just ask that you would help bless us now again as we look to your word. Help me as I preach now. Give me clarity of speech and thought. And help us to be changed by the truths we see in this passage. Help us to see that you are a magnificently powerful and sovereign God. And help us to be all the better for it and to praise you better. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What was once considered to be the behavior of those dancing on the edge of the lunatic fringe is now considered to be a normative part of human existence. Talking to yourself is the new normal, I guess, which is great news because I've been doing it for a while. And I was getting a little bit worried about it until I found out it was normal. But the experts are now saying that it's good for you which I will agree with because I do it myself. However, I will say this. If you're talking to yourself in the third person, that's not normal. That's weird, and you need help, so don't do that. But the experts have come up with a list of these benefits that they've identified with talking to yourself. All right. For instance, one benefit is this. It helps your brain work more effectively. Okay? Because hearing yourself say the words out loud improves your memory of it, and it helps improve your attention span and concentration. So basically what it's doing is it's serving as an audible aid, all right? Another benefit of talking to yourself is that it can help motivate you. Anybody ever do this one before? Come on, I'm going to get this done, you know, you know, that kind of thing. I'm the only crazy one here, I guess. All right. Keep talking to myself here, I guess. All right, for example... There was one study on tennis players and found that when they incorporated self-talk encouragement into their practice routine, they had drastically measurable performance gains, all from simply positive encouragement from themselves, talking to themselves. Another benefit of talking to yourself is that not only can it help motivate you, but it can help relieve stress. See, it allows you to organize your thoughts and prioritize your obligations so that your mind isn't constantly racing, wondering when you're going to have enough time to get all of these important things done. Similarly, if you talk to yourself and practice through what you would say in an upcoming difficult situation, it prepares you for that situation as you think it through and imagine, well, if they said this, then I'll say this, and you know, that kind of thing. The point is, though, talking to yourself has a lot of personal benefits. But now I want that in mind, I want to ask you a question. Is that what prayer is? Is prayer simply a special kind of talking to yourself that yields positive personal benefits? After all, I mean, we're not the only religion that has prayer, right? And we believe that our prayers are heard while other religions are not. As Christians, not only do we think that there is a God on the other end of the line listening to us, We believe that this God really does act. See, atheists will tell you that that's certainly not the case. There's nobody there. You're up there talking to yourself, even though you think there's somebody else listening. However, I didn't know this, but atheists have developed their own atheist prayers because they realize the self-talk aspect of it is so vitally helpful and important. They're all getting into meditation, into um, praying and communicating their thoughts and stuff, even though they know no one is listening. But again, I ask you, is that all that prayer is? Is it a meditating act which has no listener on the end of the line? Well, as we said a second ago, no. As Christians, the answer is clearly no. 
For we believe that prayer is so much more than that. We believe there's a sovereign God listening who cares and loves us and acts when we act by requesting our request to him. So I ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you really believe that prayer is effective? Do you really believe that this same all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing God actually will do things in the universe when piddly old us use our words and make our request known to him? Do you believe that? You should. Does prayer move the hand of an omnipotent God? Yes, it does. Or is prayer simply about moving us to better follow the hand of God? See, here's the dilemma. Who's the author of human history? Well, I mean, I think I've got some say in this. I got up today. I didn't have to. I could have just played hooky and stayed home and made you all figure out what was going on today. My dad's here. He could have figured something out and preached. Right? That was my choice. Clearly, I have a say in this human history thing. Don't you all make choices? Yeah, of course. But that's the question. Who then is the author of human history? Is it man or is it God? Because if it's God, then think about this. And I struggled with this for a really long time. Why pray at all? Isn't that a lot like just simply saying, hey, Lord, can you make the sun come up tomorrow? We really need the sun come up tomorrow. And we're like, it's going to come up tomorrow. It's going to happen anyways. But I got to be faithful and say these prayers asking for things that are going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't make sense. But on the flip side, if man is the author of human history then that's terrifying. I don't want to live in that universe either. Because I don't know about you, but I make a whole lot of stupid, foolish choices. And I know you do as well, because you're human. But we don't want man in charge of human history. Because that's a terrifying thing. Because if the outcome of human history is simply dependent upon how much I pray or how good I pray, then we're in serious trouble because we know that even the best prayer warriors amongst us are still terrible at prayer. However, as we'll see from our text this morning, God is the absolute sovereign Lord of human history, full stop. We're not talking fatalism, but he is the sovereign Lord of human history. And secondly, this same sovereign Lord delights to answer the prayers of his people, which means that prayer is powerful. It means that prayer is vitally important. And so this morning, we are looking at Hezekiah's prayer in Isaiah chapter 37. So if you have your Bibles, turn with them there. And the reason we are looking at this prayer is because not only is it a good precursor for Jesus' prayer in Matthew chapter 6, but it's an excellent, as we said before, precursor to our fellowship and focus hour. Last shameless plug. So join us for that. And so this morning, though, you're going to get a double whammy on the sovereignty of God, which, Lord willing, will drastically impact our view of prayer. That's our goal here. That's what this text will do for us if we follow it. Let's try to do that. And so for the next several hours, I'd like us to look at Hezekiah's prayer in Isaiah 37, which is strangely similar in form and function to Jesus' prayer. I was talking to Steve last night. Steve White, he popped by the office, and I told him what I was studying. I said, you know, it's weird. It's almost like there's a sovereign God who's the true author of all these other authors' books. And he said, yeah, it's almost like that, isn't it? And that's because it is. So, same outline. It might change, but let's, it's probably going to be the same. Here's the same. It should be the same outline next week. So here's our outline for, outline for today. Save it, because it'll be the same for next week. Powerful prayer does four things. Adores, admits, asks, and accepts. You got that? All right. What does powerful prayer adore? Myself? No. Powerful prayer adores God's name. Okay? Now, before we jump into this text, i got to give us a little background here on Isaiah 37. Okay? Because there's a lot going on in this book. So, previously on the book of Isaiah, Israel sinned against God yet again, and God promised to send judgment. How did Israel sin? They sinned by being corrupt. The leaders were all corrupt. They were taking advantage of the poor. They were abusing people. And they refused to trust in God. Right, Because God made a deal with them. He's like, if you trust me and follow me, I will take care of you, bless your land, and bless you and your people. But if you don't, I'm going to do the other thing. And they kept not trusting in God, so God's like, all right, I'm a, I'm a God of my word. I'm doing the other thing. 
All right? But how did they refuse to trust in God? Well, when the big, bad, nasty Assyrians came rolling up in their, take, in their tanks and Apache helicopters, they got all nervous about it. And they got scared. And so instead of trusting in God, what did they do? They went to Egypt. And they made an alliance with Egypt, which God specifically told them not to do. Right? But they're like, hey, these guys are really big and bad. Man, look at that army. Egypt, we need your help. And so God said, all right, enough's enough. Judgment is coming. Exile is coming. So God pronounced judgment upon them. But fast forward a little bit. David's descendant, King Hezekiah here, he was a good king, and so God delayed that judgment. But then Hezekiah does something that's not so good. He starts closing up to the Babylonians. He has an embassy. There's like a bunch of ambassadors from them. They come, and he's like, hey, check out all the riches in our throne room and all this stuff. We're, we're loaded. Look how great we are. And he did that because he was trying to win them over as a form of basically making an alliance with them. And so God was like, all right, judgment's coming. It's back on. So God sends judgment in the form of, as we just read from that passage, King Sennacherib, who is Assyria's really, really wicked king. So here's what happens. King Sennacherib, Sennacherib, there we go, there's a mouthful. He sends his general to warn King Hezekiah that he better surrender or else. You better surrender or else you're dead meat like all those other kings who got destroyed because they refused to, to surrender. And he wasn't just talk. These Assyrians were nasty, nasty, nasty people. The way that they would destroy a nation and other kings who refused to surrender, I can't go into detail here with children in the room. It's nasty stuff, all right? Remember the word harem from a while back from 2 Samuel 2? That was like harem on steroids, okay? This was bad stuff. They wiped out everybody, the men, the women, the children, and they would kill you in horrifying ways. And why did they do it this way? Well, one, they were evil and wicked. But two, because when they strolled up to another king's gates, they don't want to have to sit there and wait for four years for that siege to finish out. They wanted that king to be so terrified because he knew what fate was coming for him that he would just say, I don't want that. You guys, you guys can rule. I'll send you tribute. You guys will be in charge. That's fine. So Assyria's general strolls up to the Jerusalem gates, and he starts acting like Goliath, all right? He starts mouthing off not only to Israel and Jerusalem, saying that he's going to take it over, but he also starts mouthing off about Israel's God, right? Saying slanderous and bad things, bragging about how Israel's God, Yahweh, cannot save them. And so King Hezekiah goes to God in full repentance for the sin of not trusting God, and then seeks God's divine refuge. And after he does, God sovereignly brings about the death of this big-mouthed general. Remember what the text said? He sent a messenger to have him come home, and then he ended up getting killed from it. All right? And so he he brought about the death of this big-mouthed general. He then goes on to obliterate Assyria's army, army, and then he highlights the death of Assyria's king, Sennacherib, as we read last in that passage. Now, question for you. Why does God do all this? Why? Look with your Bibles at verse 21. Isaiah 37, verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you prayed. That's why. That's the reason. Because you prayed to me concerning the king of Assyria. And then he goes on to explain all that he was going to do. And so with this background in mind, I'd like us to examine King Hezekiah's prayer so that we might learn from it, benefit from it, and better know our God. Let me ask you, how did King Hezekiah's prayer begin? Anybody notice? What's he start with? Does he go in there and he's just like, oh God, we're in a big situation, we need your help, you've got to take care of us. I've got all these problems, I'm so scared, we've got these needs, we need food. No, he doesn't, does he? What does he do? He begins with worship, adoration. That's the start of the prayer. That's actually a large portion of that prayer. That's most of it, actually. He begins with adoring Yahweh's name. And that's because powerful prayer adores God's name. That's how our prayers should be loaded. They should be loaded with this, right? Look with me in your Bibles at verses 15 and 16. It's not up on the screen because I want you to look in your Bibles. You guys stick to the main passage. I'll bring up the cross-references. I think that's a fair deal, isn't it? Verse 15, 
And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. What's he doing here? He's doing precisely what Jesus instructed us to do when he said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does that word hallowed mean? It means to venerate God as holy or to sanctify his name. What does that mean? Okay, look, I can't preach two messages at once unless we're going to actually go till dinner time tonight. But in short, what it means is it is pointing out the holiness, the glory, and the absolute supreme worth of God. That's what, that's what it means, right? It's adoring God's name, all right? Simply, though, at the same time, if we only are providing lip service in our adoration of God's name, without heart service, that's not veneration. What is it? It's abomination. You can't adore God's name with your mouth if your heart is also not adoring God's name. It's not a hocus-pocus sort of thing. You just say these nice things about God, these platitudes, and then your prayers are going to be heard. That's not how it works. You know what then prayer largely is? Prayer is this. It is the heart engaged in loving awe and worship. It is the heart engaged in loving awe and worship. The essence of prayer isn't a letter to Santa Claus asking for all the things we want in our life. Some of us approach prayer that way or have approached prayer that way. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is and begins with the acknowledgement that God is God, no one else is God, including myself, and that he alone is a God who is worthy of value and worship and praise. Prayer, then, is worshiping God for who he is and how great he is. Psalm 99, 1-3 says this, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned above upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the people. Let them praise your great and awesome name, for holy is he. Psalm 132.7 says this, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. That's bowing before him, right? Bowing before his majesty, his value, and his supreme worth. Or, as Hezekiah says in verse 16, look at your Bibles, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. If you want a clear description of the glory and majesty of this enthroned God, I have some homework for you, and it's Ezekiel chapter 1. And in that, when Ezekiel gets a little glimpse of God's glory, what does he do? He falls flat on his face as dead, which is the pattern of anyone who encounters the glory of God. And so when it comes to prayer, I know no Christian who says that prayer comes easy for them. And let me ask you, why do you think that that is? There's several reasons, but there's one big one. Prayer doesn't come easy for us because worship doesn't come easy for us. At least not worship of God. I have no problems worshiping myself and worshiping things that feed and actually serve myself. And you are the same way. When it comes to worshiping and adoring myself, that's easy. I've got no problem doing that. But when it comes to spending time in prayer and adoring God's name, his value, and his supreme worth in said prayer, that's hard. Because I have to take my worship off myself for a little while and put it upon God where it should be. And that's really, really difficult for us. And until we come to admit our sin before this holy God and our wrongful dependence on false gods, including ourselves, we're false gods, we are not the true God, there's only one, as Hezekiah points out, we will struggle greatly with prayer. We will. And that leads us to our second point. Powerful prayer adores God's name, but secondly admits our sin. That's confession. In this passage, does Hezekiah pray to God with a sense of self-entitlement? Does he pray to God and say, God, where are you at, yo? Like, what's going on? No, he doesn't. He doesn't pray to God and say, you better fix this right now because I don't deserve any of this. 
I deserve better. You owe me, God. You owe me, and I don't want this now. He doesn't do any of that kind of stuff. Yet, are we not guilty of praying that way sometimes? Of getting frustrated with God because he's not delivering in the way that we think he should? In verse 1, how does it say King Hezekiah responded as he went into the house of the Lord to seek his aid? It says he tore his clothes, he covered himself with sackcloth. That's repentance. That's mourning. All right? And in verse 3, he describes their situation how? Not as like this is God's fault. No, he's like, yeah, this is, this is our fault. This is our bad. We totally are the ones responsible for this. All right? This is a self-inflicted day of distress, rebuke, and, great, and disgrace, as he, as he says right in verse 3. And the point of the comparison of childbirth there is he's basically saying, you know, we got ourselves in this situation. Now we don't have the strength to deal with it. Like, there's a whole lot of pain coming, and we need your help. Like, give me the epidural, God. Like, we need some help right now. That's basically the illustration he's given us. And so recognizing this, Hezekiah admits his sin, and then he goes on to confess it before God. Just as Jesus instructs us to do in Matthew 6, 12, where he says, and what? And forgive us our debts. Forgive us, God. That's confession of sin. When King Hezekiah requests God's forgiveness and aid, what does he appeal to? He says, God, you need to please forgive us because of what? What is, what is, his, what is he appealing to there? It's not to his self-worth, but God's self-worth. Hezekiah says, Lord, this is not on you. This is on us and our sin. This terrible situation is our fault. And we come before you and we confess our sin to you. Hezekiah then asked the Lord for his aid. Why? Not for his own namesake, but for God's namesake. For it is God's name who has been mocked by the Assyrian king, as we see in verses 4 and 17. And why, let me ask you, does that bother King Hezekiah so much? Because King Hezekiah adores God and sees his infinite worth as we just saw in our verse point. What is the reason Hezekiah asked the Lord to show mercy upon them? Verse 20, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Lord. He's right back to the adoration part again, even his request, right? He's back to praising God, isn't he? And why? Because to, to see the supreme worth of God is then to see the gravitas of our sin against such valuable God, which then leads us to having a concern for the supreme worth of God and his name being known and glory being given to him. The remarkable thing about prayer is this. As sinners, we are able to go before a sinless, holy God, an all-powerful God, and ask for his kindness, his mercy, and his unmerited favor. And what is the basis upon which we ask? Or the basis upon which our prayers are answered? Is it the quality of my prayer? No. Is it the degree of my faithfulness to God? No. He doesn't say, all right, Hezekiah, you, you really show remorse. I'm, I'm impressed. I'll do it. No. It's all about his character, his name. How about this one? The value of my self-worth? No, praise God, no. For it is the value of God's self-worth, and his value is of infinite worth. And so when King Hezekiah appeals to God to save his remnant people, he does not do so based upon the remnant's worth, but upon God's infinite worth. Which means, church, it's not about you. I know that hurts our Western feelings, but it's not about you. It's not about us. It's about him. All of it, right? And so the only reason we as God's remnant people benefit is because he has graciously attached his self-worth to our fate. Did you catch that? Are you with me? He's attached his self, he's, he's attached his namesake, right, to our fate. And we see this all throughout the Bible. Look at Joshua 7, 8 through 9. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our names from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Think about Moses with me for a second. When Moses, when God comes to Moses, he's like, I'm wiping them out. I'm starting over with you. What is the reason by which Moses says, no, please don't do that? Your namesake. 
Not, I'm really, really sorry. Not, we'll try better. Not, give us a second chance. No, it's for your namesake, for your great glory. In verse 35, God explains why he will defend King Hezekiah and the Israelite people, and here's what he says, I will defend this city to save it for my own namesake and for the sake of my servant David. You see how incredibly important this point is for our Christian faith? Even though as God's remnant people, we sin against him every single day, all the time. When we confess our sins, what does John tell us? He is faithful and just to forgive them. Why? Because of my self-worth? Because of my sincerity? Because of how much I'm going to try harder? No. It's because of his worth. His infinite worth. You see now why the author of Hebrews tells us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne room of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And that's precisely what King Hezekiah did, is it not? And that's precisely what you and I can do because of the grace of God. And the wonderful thing about our confidence is that it's not grounded, as we've already said several times now, in my worth, but ultimately it's actually grounded in Christ's worth, right? We see even more clearly than Hezekiah did where our self-worth is grounded. It's in Christ's infinite worth. And so, church, let us adore our God in prayer. Let us admit our sin before him, but let us also accept whatever he says is best and then ask him for help, which leads us to our third point. In our prayers, we have to ask for God's help. Slides out of order, but whatever. It's ask for God's help, all right? That's the third one. Ask for God's help. Verse 21, Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. And then look down at verse 36 with me for the results. Here's what happened. Because he prayed, here's what happened. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. And then, as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, what happened? His two sons came along and killed him right there before his God. Thank God. And why did this occur? Because Hezekiah prayed. That's what it says. We said before that one of the reasons for prayerlessness in God's people is a lack of adoration, and that's definitely true. But do you know the other big reason why we don't pray? It's this. We're trusting in Egypt. We're doing the same thing the Israelites would often do. We're trusting in Egypt. Instead of trusting in the promises of God and bringing our request to him, we think that we can get by just fine without him. Don't we? Aren't we guilty of this? So instead, like Israel, we look to the Egypts of our world for comfort, safety, and refuge. Why do we fail to adore God's name and ask him for our daily bread, as Jesus instructs us to in the Lord's Prayer? Because we're looking to Egypt. I don't really need daily bread. I've got a whole bunch of it in my pantry at home. Lots of food, more food than I can handle. I'm good. We're looking to Egypt. I don't even have any debt. I got a great job, finances maybe. Uh, and so, God, I don't, I'm kind of good right now. Maybe in six months if I lose my job, I'll come to you and ask you to provide my daily bread. We're looking to Egypt. What about health? My health's good right now. I'm not having any issues, really, or it's manageable. I've got a great doctor. I do this low-carb diet thing, and I take my vitamins. I'm good. We're looking to Egypt. Why don't we pray daily asking God to deliver us from sin's temptation, as Jesus instructs us to in the Lord's Prayer? Well, because we're not doing too bad. Yeah, we sin, but you know what, really? I don't know if you've been at church before and looked around, but there's... A whole lot of people doing way worse than I am. So, I mean, they probably should be praying. Maybe I'll pray for them once in a while, but really, I'm good right now. And why do we think that way? Because we're looking to Egypt. Why is the church's prayer meetings the least attended ministry in the entire church? 
Well, pastor, I mean, come on, look around. Things are going pretty good. We're having parking issues. Sometimes we're having seating issues. We're growing to the point where we're having to deal with these problems. I know prayer is important, but we've got gifted worship leaders. We've got biblical preaching. We've got solid Sunday school teachers, a loving and inviting church family. Like I keep going on and on and on with all the good things we've got. And really, when we think that way, and yes, those are good things, but when we don't think we need to pray because all those things are in place and those are good things from God, we're looking to Egypt. We're looking to the things he gives, and we're looking to the gifts instead of the giver is what we're doing, right? It's looking to Egypt. Isaiah 30, 1 through 3 says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh or to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. What's your Egypt? Because it's your idol. That's what it is. And so we need to be examining these things. And so Christian, I ask you, is there anything in your life that forces you to daily go to God with King Hezekiah's prayer, and pray, God, if you don't help me against this massive difficulty I have, this huge army, whatever that army is, if you don't have something like that in your life, then it's because you're not looking to Yahweh God for your daily bread, you're looking to Egypt. And the reality is, our daily sustenance, as that verse we just read points out, cannot find fulfillment in Egypt. It can only be found in God. And so, how foolish of us to go to these lesser little gods around us, whatever it is, our job, our money, our health, our careers, whatever, when we've got the infinite living God who is worthy of our adoration and our praise, who is supreme in worth and who answers our prayers and is all-powerful to answer said prayers. You want to know a really easy way to tell if you're looking to Egypt for your daily bread? It's this. Panic, anxiety, worry, stress. Anybody ever struggle with those? Okay, me and one other. But for those of us who trust in the sovereign Lord, what does Isaiah 28, 6 says? It says this, we will never be stricken with panic. Isn't that true? It's a challenge, but it's true. You know what worry is? It's the same thing that prayerlessness is. They are both calling God's character and his name into question. They really are. That's why we look to the Egypts of our world to comfort us and to give us safety and refuge. It's because, like Israel, we fail to trust God and depend upon him completely by putting our absolute faith and trust in him. And in Isaiah 7-9, the Lord provides a response to those who treat God this way. And here's what he says. You do not stand firm in your faith. You will not stand at all. And God's the one who's going to come out and make you not stand. Right? That's what he does with Israel. Right? He says, you're going to keep trusting the gods of this world? I'm going to show you what happens when you trust them. Back off. And then comes the judgment and the problems. So I ask you, how's your prayer life, church? Because here's the thing. Here's the scary thing. Your prayer life is a mirror that reflects where you are with God. It really is. It's not a hot take. It's true. For what is prayerlessness but a heart that does not adore and value God's supreme worth? And when we don't adore and value God's supreme worth, we got to adore and value something else. And that's where we look to the Egypts of this world and we start adoring and valuing them and finding our refuge in those sinful idols instead of the one and true living God. And when we do that, do we confess our sins before that said God? No. Why? Because we don't think we need to. We don't, see, coming to confess your sins isn't a magical phrase to make everything all better. No, it's seeing the supreme value and worth of God and then consequently seeing the gravitas of our sin against said supreme 
worthy and valuable God. That's the fuel and motive for confession of sin. And I know we don't have time to highlight it much this morning, but the common theme running through Isaiah chapter 37 is that only Yahweh is God. That's it. He is the only God. Not the false gods of Egypt and Assyria. And this next part, stick with me here, this next part's pretty awesome. When the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, is sent home with his tail between his legs, and it's actually, he goes back exactly how God says it's going to happen, right? It's not like God's like, I'm going to send you home, and one way or another you'll get there. No, it's like, you're going to go back the exact way you came, and it's like verbatim how it happens. But what happens after he goes back? He's sitting there worshiping the false god in his house, and he's killed before said false god. What a powerless God he served, is it not? You see the significance here? You've got King Hezekiah. He's facing, you know, what, hundreds of thousands, right? It only tells us that God killed 185,000 one night, so we'll assume there was more than that. Some of them lived, right, because they came out and found the dead bodies. So this is a lot of soldiers. Hezekiah's facing that massive army, and they're toast. And God, his God, Yahweh God, the one true living God, saves his life. And then you've got Sennacherib, who goes home after getting defeated by said God, is in his temple working, worshiping the false god, and his false god can't even protect him from his two measly sons. You see that contrast here? Like, that's the theme that keeps popping up over and over through this great chapter. And so what foolishness it is then for us to look to Egypt and the false gods of this world that cannot come even close to the power and sovereignty of Yahweh God. The psalmist writes in one, Psalm 135.5, he says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. And so, church, it is only because our God is great and above all other gods that we can adore his name, admit our sin before him, and ask for his help. Powerful prayer, fourthly, accepts God's sovereignty. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, verse 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Does that echo at all Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Then what does he say? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Roughly half a decade ago, this passage we're looking at this morning had a radical, drastic impact upon my own understanding of not only the importance of prayer, but also upon the absolute sovereignty of God. And so that's why we're looking at this morning. Because it's my hope and prayer that this passage will have a similar impact upon you as it did for me so many years ago. And here's why it had such a drastic impact upon me. See, back then, I was seriously kicking and screaming and wrestling with this idea of a God who was the sovereign Lord of all of human history. I didn't like that. I liked thinking I was largely in charge of things. And so this, this, this was really rough for me. I did not like it at all. And so I was trying to comprehend how God can on one hand be the completely sovereign Lord of human history and on the other hand, answer prayer. And I'll just say this, if you still are sitting there thinking, I don't think that's right. I don't think he's a sovereign Lord of human history. Last shameless plug, stick around for the attributes of, class, uh, attributes of God class we're going to have in a moment. And we'll look at some of these scriptures more clearly. But if you, for now... If you're struggling with believing God is the sovereign Lord of human history, look closer at this passage with me. Because not only does it say in verse 21 that the reason God acted is why? Because King Hezekiah prayed. What does verse 26 say about the reason God acted? Did anybody notice it? Look at your Bibles. Verse 26. Here's God speaking. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. Wait, what? <laughs> like, I thought you said, God, that the reason you acted was because Hezekiah prayed. Now you're saying you decided this from days past, eternity past? Like, which is it? 
Was it Hezekiah's prayer or your sovereign will to decree this to be so? And of course, the answer is yes. And it's a wonderful answer. The reason, then, we can confidently pray to this sovereign God is because he is the absolute sovereign Lord of human history. Why are we praying to him if he's just trying to do his best and he's like, oh, you know, you're praying to me, but I've got half the people asking for something that contradicts your prayer and I, this is, I'll, I'll do my best. It's not a sovereign Lord, all right? That's not our God. Isaiah 45, 7 says this. This is how sovereign he is. I form the light. And I create the darkness. I bring prosperity and I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Does that sound like the Western God that most people claim to serve and believe? No, they don't like that kind of a God. The one who brings calamity, the one who brings disaster. He's the peace and the storm. That's just the God we serve. And so way before Hezekiah even prayed, asking for God's forgiveness and aid, do you know what the Lord decreed? Oops, I lost my spot. He decreed this. The Lord Almighty has sworn. This is Isaiah 14, 24 through 27. Surely as I have planned, so it will be. This is earlier in Isaiah, all right? This is way earlier. This is what God says his plan is, all right? So it will happen, I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains, I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? This is a God who is in the heavens, a God who is in the heavens and does all that he pleases. He's a big God, a total sovereign God, a God who has determined his plans, as Scripture tells us, before the foundation of the world. And in those plans, they even include our prayers. That's remarkable. And I'll tell you what kind of God this is. It's a God that is so much bigger than our finite puny minds can possibly comprehend. It's a God who performs foreordained actions and simultaneously answers the prayers of his people. That's remarkable. And let me show you an example of this. In Luke chapter 1, the angel shows up and he tells Zacharias, like, your prayer's been heard. Your wife who is barren is going to have a son. And who was that son? John the Baptist, right? And so let me ask you, if he's answering the prayer there, how does that fit with all the prophecy about the coming Messiah and the forerunner who John the Baptist was of said Messiah? Which is it, God? Did you answer the prayer because he prayed, or did you foreordain these things in eternity past? And again, the wonderful answer is yes. It's both. And if you are frustrated because you can't make sense of it, get over it. You're trying to figure out an infinite God with your finite three-pound, sin-fallen human brain. You're not going to be able to do it. And so this is the kind of God we serve. That's remarkable. Here's the remarkable thing about the God we serve. He is the complete and total sovereign Lord of all of human history, and his sovereignty is so supreme that we can confidently know that he will not only hear our prayers, but act decisively for the good of his remnant people for the sake of his great glory. That's a mouthful. Did you follow it? That's the God we serve. And so, yes, we should absolutely turn to our sovereign Lord and regularly adore his name in prayer instead of what we typically often do, which is make alliances with the false gods of Egypt, with the idols of this world that we look to to bring us comfort and aid. And we must do this recognizing that the only reason our God answers our prayers and if you zoned out, zone in for this. This is why. Why does God answer our prayers? It's one reason. Because his son, his prayer was not answered. That's the only reason your prayers can be answered. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ knew what laid before him. And he trembled. And he prayed and begged his heavenly Father that if it was possible, that the cup might pass from him. 
And what was heaven's answer? No. It was no. But because the answer to Christ's prayer was no, our prayers to be spared from the cup of God's judgment is answered with a 100% yes every single time. Every time. And so because of Jesus, we can go to God in prayer. We can go to God and adore His name. We can go to God and admit our sin. We can go to God and ask for His help. And we can go to God in our prayers, fully accepting the joy and comfort of knowing that He is an absolute sovereign Lord of human history. And praise God that He is. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for this text. We thank You for who You are. And mostly, Lord, we thank You that because of Jesus, You hear our prayers, that You accept us. And so, Father, we just thank You that because Christ took the cup of judgment, we don't have to. And we know that by grace through faith in Jesus, we can be accepted as your sons and daughters who then can stop looking to the gods of Egypt, the idols of Egypt, the alliances with the things of this world that we look to for aid and comfort, but we can look to you and adore your name and seek refuge in you. Father, you tell us that you look at all the nations who plot in vain and you laugh at their foolish endeavors. Help us not to be like that. Help us to trust in you and see that your absolute perfect sovereign will is perfect. And so we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we'll give you all the praise, the honor, and the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You stand with us as we sing our closing song. We're going to sing this song the next two weeks, well, this week and next week as our closing song. It's the Christian's daily And may this be our prayer that we sing together from a heart that adores.